The murder of one person is called unrighteous and incurs one death penalty. Following this argument, the murder of 10 persons will be 10 times as unrighteous and there should be 10 death penalties. The murder of 100 persons will be 100 times as unrighteous and there should be 100 death penalties. All the gentlemen of the world know that they should condemn these things, calling them unrighteous. But when it comes to the great unrighteousness of states attacking states, they do not know they should condemn it. On the contrary, they applaud it calling it righteous. Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Today I have David Swanson, author of Leaving World War II Behind. He's an author, activist, journalist, and radio host. He is the executive director of World Beyond War and campaign coordinator for RootsAction.org. Mr. Swanson, thank you so much for your time today. Very glad to be here. Very often people will say that everyone's anti-war we, some of us who uh, prefer an interventionist policy, see this as averting a bigger war that would arise if we stood back and did nothing. What does it mean to you to be anti-war? Well, in terms of that uh, quote and statistics you opened with, I think taking war seriously would mean the exact opposite of killing 10 people if the war killed 10 people, or in the case of World War II, killing 60, 70 million people if the war killed 70. Very quickly, you come to realize that an eye for an eye makes the world blind. Uh, but I think taking very seriously the crime of war, uh, the crime of big wars and small wars as either way, much larger than the crime of individual murder uh, is exactly what's needed uh, or we're headed for catastrophe. We're headed for nuclear catastrophe, climate catastrophe, and of course the budget catastrophe through which war actually kills vastly more people through the diversion of resources into it than through the violence of the wars thus far, at least until we get to bigger or, or nuclear wars. Uh, so this, this idea that you can fend off larger wars by having smaller wars, uh, I, I haven't seen any evidence for that. Uh, I mean, since Eisenhower figured out how you could overthrow governments with the CIA instead of wars, uh, we've seen blowback. We've seen these smaller actions result in larger actions. Uh, Professor David Vine from American University last year put out a book called The U.S. State, the United States of War, uh, looking at foreign military bases and finding that where you put them, you get more wars. You don't eliminate more wars. Uh, you can look at levels of military spending over the years, at the placement of troops, at the propaganda and the threats. It all leads to more wars, not away from them. You don't, you know, you don't build a bigger, smarter military and get more peace and fewer wars. You get what you're building and planning and training and arming people for, more wars. Before getting into the Second World War, I just want to summarize um, some information on the first. Of course, it's so difficult to find a starting point. Uh, we have uh, Britain declaring war on August 4th, 1914. This was a causal result of Germany invading Belgium in order to get to France in violation of an 1839 agreement between the UK, France, and Prussia, the Treaty of London, uh, guaranteeing Belgium's neutrality. What are the lessons and big takeaways from the First World War? 
Well, some of the lessons were pretty well learned by a lot of people. Not enough, not enough to make it work, to, to fend off the sequel that was, you know, predicted by very smart people upon the conclusion of World War I. So, so one lesson is that having thousands of people slaughter and poison and gun each other down uh, in lined up trenches for no earthly reason for year after year is incredibly stupid and horrific and tragic. Uh, this was a lesson a lot of people learned. Uh, another lesson is that you don't end the war with vicious, vengeful, uh, you know, repercussions for one party. If, you, if you're not going to expect that party to come back seeking vengeance when it's able, uh, which is why you had very smart people upon the conclusion of the, the Treaty of Versailles after World War I, predict, predicting World War II, down, down almost to the day. Uh, and it, 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 was, it was just a, an incredible failure uh, of will, of, of understanding, of political force, uh, and, uh, and quite possibly of government handling of a disease pandemic uh, uh, very much like the current one, uh, which is a, uh, an interesting story, if, if you don't mind me throwing it in. Um, you know, that the, the doctors like today were warning people not to not to mix and cough and sneeze all over each other. And the, uh, the politicians were putting up signs that don't spit, don't sneeze, don't cough, everything will be fine. Uh, and of course they had this big march and rally for the returned troops in Philadelphia. Uh, and these were US troops that had brought the so-called Spanish flu to World War I and were now bringing it home in larger numbers. And of course it spread everywhere. And among the people who got it was a guy named Woodrow Wilson in the White House. And while he was at Paris, France for the treaty negotiations, uh, he failed to stand up to Britain uh, to seek a peace without victor and vengeance uh, and let the whole world down that believed his his rhetoric uh, about, you know, a lot of it was, you know, just phony from top to bottom, but some of it he may have actually meant at some point. In any case, he didn't uh, put up any fight for any of it. Uh, and you got this horrible treaty while Wilson was, you know, lying sick in bed, hacking away uh, there in Paris. So, uh, you know, there, there are these freak incidents in, in history that uh, could have so easily gone a different way that can have horrible consequences. Ralph Rako, uh, the historian, uh, mostly uh, focusing on the world wars, says that uh, the greatest weapon was uh, the blockade instituted by Churchill when he was first Lord of the Admiralty in 1914. There was also a large blockade in the 90s uh, that the U.S. and U.N. Uh, had on Iraq. With your research, uh, what do you think about the moral justification of things like blockades or even sanctions, and uh, are they effective? Well, the blockade on Cuba has been going strong without any hint of even partial victory on its own terms for, you know, well beyond my lifetime, uh, you know, th there does not seem to be 
uh, any sign that that these sanctions, these blockades, these immoral and illegal general punishments of whole populations in violation of the Geneva Conventions work on their own terms. Uh, I, I mean, there you can go back and say, well, the, the you know ancient Greece fell because they blocked the the exit from the Black Sea and they couldn't get anything to eat, uh, and you can find cases where you know some some sort of international boycott uh, had some impact on, you know, apartheid South Africa, um, you know, some partial victories in terms of, of BDS on the Israeli government, etc. Uh, but in general, these sanctions do not work on their own terms, at least as stated explicitly. Uh, if the plan is to weaken a nation uh, prior to a war, if the plan is sadistic punishment and the creation of suffering among men, women, and children, well then yes, they work. Uh, they're, they're horrific. Uh, and the United States has these sanctions punishing not just individuals, but whole populations of men, women, and children, depriving them of food and medicine in numerous countries all over the globe, uh, Cuba, Iran, North Korea, uh, it, it's Syria, of course, uh, it, it, it's something that's, that's got to be dealt with uh, and treated as part and parcel of the crime of, of war, uh, because it is, it is punishment of innocent people uh, for the disputes of governments, uh, and it, it ought not to be tolerated. Excellent points. Uh, the book is World War is leaving World War II behind. Sorry, I was reading the back as I said that. Uh, let's get into the Second World War. On uh, September third, nineteen thirty-nine, two days after Germany invades Poland, the United Kingdom declares war on Germany. France declares war on the same day. Was the UK morally justified in declaring war on Germany as a cause or result of invading Poland? I don't think there can be a moral justification for launching a war, whether you declare it or not, uh, and whether you fight it or not. Here's a, here's a case of declaring it and not immediately fighting it. Uh, I, I, th I think if you go through, I, I wrote a book called War is Never Just, going through all the theorizing of the just war theorists as to what could justify a war and make it morally acceptable and somehow do more good than evil or be acceptable despite doing more evil than good. And, and I couldn't find any way to do it. Uh, the criteria are all either just purely nonsensical rhetoric that you can't go out and measure and find out whether it means anything or not, you know, what's, what's proportional, who knows, they just pull a number out of the air, or, or it's stuff that is just simply amoral, just has nothing to do with morality whatsoever, you know, is it, is the war declared by the proper authority? I mean, if, if, if Canada bombs you in the United States, are you gonna run outside and shout, was it the prime minister or the parliament? If it was the parliament, I like these bombs. If it was the prime minister, God God damn him, stop the bombs. You know, who cares? It's a crime. It's mass killing. I don't care which authority, is, you know. And, and when you, you talk about defense, I mean, this is one of the lessons I was going to mention and, and forgot in my haste on your World War I question. One of the lessons ought to have been, do not sign up to be required to join in somebody else's war. You know, this is what NATO is, right? I mean, when, when England and France both sent arm, you know, warships to some little island some weeks back, if they had actually gone to war, 
every other NATO member would have been required to attack both of them, uh, as well as each other as soon as any of them had attacked any NATO member. Uh, this was what World War I was, an, a commitment to get into wars because somebody else got into wars. Very dumb idea uh, and, and not a moral idea. Um, when you look at, at the results, uh, when, you look at, when you look at what led up to that situation and the behavior of the United Kingdom and its support for armaments and its support for the rise of the Nazi government in Germany, uh, you know, as preferable to any possibility of communist influence in Germany, uh, and then the decision to declare war, and the, and the horrific results of that, the worst thing that humanity has ever done to itself in any short space of time, it's hard to imagine a, a worse choice than that declaration of war. Uh, some of the, uh, the smartest uh, people in the arena who uh, constantly, I mean, th they've never met a war they didn't like, are the Council on Foreign Relations. I want to quote from the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's very vague, and he knows his audience, so he knows he doesn't really have to make a case here. But this is what he wrote in World in Disarray. The Second World War could not have been more different in its origins from the first. Not surprisingly, the lessons to be learned are very different from those to be drawn from the run-up to World War I. Germany and Japan embraced goals in the 1930s that could not be accommodated within the existing international order. Both had become hostage to political systems at home that eliminated checks and balances on those wielding political power. Both invested heavily in the means to wage war. Both did their part to upset the balance of power that had developed. The result was that whereas World War I was largely an accidental and avoidable war, World War II was anything but. How do you respond to the infinite wisdom of Richard Haas? I think it's infinitely wrong, uh, and not just myself, but people I, I absolutely despise. I, I mean, people like Winston Churchill, who had something to do with both of those wars, uh, declared World War II to have been the most avoidable war. Uh, and of course, one of the reasons for that is that it came directly out of, as we discussed earlier, how they ended World War I. To say the origins were completely different uh, would require explaining how, what the heck was different about the origins of really a sequel to a first part of a, of a pair of wars or, or one long war uh, is it, very hard to see. And when you start talking about, well, they, they were imperialistic, they, they wanted to upset the balance of power, well, how in the heck is that different from World War I is, is completely beyond me. And when you start talking about abuses at home, well, this is, of course, hinting that, well, the Nazis were cruel to people within their own realm, and the Japanese were cruel to people within Japan, and this, therefore, somehow justifies bombing those people, uh, because if someone is, you know, locking people up in prison camps and torturing them and murdering them, then bombing them is, is somehow justified, where, of course, the bombing killed vastly more people than and the prison camps, and the prison camps were absolutely unnecessary and had nothing to do with the justifications for the war, even in anyone's pretense until long after the war was over. Uh, in fact, the United States and its allies and countries around the world explicitly refused to take the future victims 
those camps out of Germany. Didn't want them, didn't care, had no interest for openly, shamelessly anti-Semitic and bigoted reasons. Uh, and, and it's the burying of, of this history and the invention of this myth that somehow the domestic cruelty of the Nazis justified the war when you know the war makers were were you know just kicking the activists away from their offices who were demanding that they stop the war for a minute and take those people out of germany and they wouldn't do it this is this the this is i think the number one feat of of western propaganda uh because it is so it's such a reversal of the reality and it is such a powerful motivation of the most horrific evils in the name of good. Because when I go and talk to a class of students or random people about ending all war, and I say, why not? 99.99% of the time, the reason is World War II. And I say, why? And 99.99% of the time, the answer is Holocaust, right? <laughs> this, is, this is the reason why we should put a trillion dollars into war next year and should tolerate drone murders around the globe and fun little wars like destroying Libya because Holocaust, because World War II. And the fact that that's absolute nonsense and just twists the facts absolutely upside down uh, is, again, I think it's the most impressive feat of propaganda I'm aware of. And we still see the propaganda all the time. It's like, well, um, oh, we uh, had to go into the Second World War because we were attacked. Well, a a years later, actually, it was because of the Holocaust. Saddam's going to nuke us any day now. Well, actually, we're trying to spread democracy. The Al-Qaeda is hiding in Afghanistan. Well, the Taliban is actually really bad, and we're actually there for regime change. It it's, like, it's like they scare you in, and then, once they, and then once their lies have been refuted, they all of a sudden have this moral compass of let's have democracy there, even though, you know, they mainly spit in our face here whenever we try to, uh, you know, alter uh, the state arrangements or anything. Uh, they have a constant uh, record of deception. I want to go to uh, what you, I believe you call, this is the most common uh, justification for the war. The concept of the National Socialist World Takeover. Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia, Austria, Poland, Denmark, Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands, France, Channel Islands of Britain, the Soviet Union, and Italy after Mussolini had been uh, uh, imprisoned. Therefore, by the actions of that government, we could see they were attempting to take over large swaths, clearly uh, with no end in sight, trying to take over the world. Therefore, we were justified in entering a war to stop a Nazi takeover. How do you respond? Well, I guess it would depend in part on who that we supposedly is. One of the most abused words in the English language, we, as we were attacked in Pearl Harbor. Well, it wasn't the United States. Who, who's the we? I mean, Hawaii was not a part of this empire yet. Um, and so if the, if the we is some government or some population that wasn't itself bent on taking over the world, I would love to know who that was. Um, you know, there was a, a book came out just last year from a professor uh, at Columbia University who works with this new uh, Quincy Institute in Washington uh, about the decision being made in foreign policy circles in the United States uh, during World War II and, and right in the early uh, stages of World War II that the United States really needed to take over the world. 
uh, and proceeded accordingly. And, and so that all of the, the bases and the land acquisition and the domination of other countries uh, got a huge boost uh, that's never let up for the United States and its empire during World War II. So I hope whoever is uh, you know, denouncing the, the German imperial ambitions, which of course nobody would dispute, uh, is, you know, is not engaged in, in wholesale hypocrisy. But, but the question of whether to bomb tens of millions of people uh, to death uh, isn't actually a question of the evil of some government against whose name you're doing it. Uh, the question is whether that will bring about the best results for those people or not. Uh, and very clearly, war brings about the worst possible results for everybody involved. There isn't anything worse than it. Uh, it you know, this new post-World War II notion that, well, that, that's somewhat built on the false propaganda around World War II, the post-World War II World War II propaganda, the, that, that genocide is something worse than war and therefore we must have wars to deal with genocide is, is just incredibly uh, misleading. Uh, <laughs> genocide is a type of war, comes out of war, is almost indistinguishable from many wars. Uh, and if we're gonna get rid of war, we're gonna get rid of genocide, but we're not gonna do it through war or through genocide. That doesn't work. Um, Erica Chenoweth's new book called Civil Resistance, What Everybody Needs to Know, uh, is, is just so well documented with the evidence that nonviolent action, even against invasions, even against coups, even against dictatorships, uh, is just so much more effective and those successes so much longer lasting than violence uh, that this notion that the evil of any enemy could somehow justify using violence or that you should resort to violence as the last resort as if it were somehow stronger or more likely to succeed than something else is just getting the facts wrong. I mean, people complain about climate denial or COVID denial or any rejection of, you know, widely accepted facts, but nonviolence denial uh, is, absolutely acceptable in Washingtonian politics, but it is absolutely just as opposing to the facts as any of these other cases. The facts are very clear. Nonviolence is more powerful than violence. And what are some real world nonviolent examples? Well, there are hundreds and I'm not gonna remember them all, uh, but you can look at uh, numerous countries uh, that in fact got rid of a Soviet empire without, without picking up a gun, uh, some of which look you know, absolutely laughable and must have been dreamed up by some hippie high on something very strange, like the, the people of Latvia throwing out the Soviet Union by singing songs but they surrounded all of the government buildings singing these nationalistic songs uh, and shut the place down until the Soviets got out. Uh, if you look at uh, if you look at places, if you look at the Arab Spring, for example, where you had all of these failed violent revolutions across North Africa and Southwest Asia, except in Tunisia, where they used very strong and strategic nonviolent action uh, 
and they were successful, at least up until now. Now everything's going to hell, possibly, in Tunisia. Um, if, if you look at, uh, if you, I mean, there, there have been, there have been successful overthrows of dictators uh, on every continent. Uh, if you look at the Palestinian struggle uh, against Israeli occupation, the first intifada, which was almost entirely nonviolent, was far more effective for predictable reasons than the second or anything to come later. Uh, and, you know, God forbid I impose my advice on the Palestinians. It's not my place, and I and I offer no unwanted advice to anyone who doesn't want it. You know, I can't, as somebody uh, who's you know supposedly uh, identified with the U.S. government, tell people the U.S. government is killing and 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 traumatizing how they should respond. But if anyone wants to know my honest answer, it is you know to look at the facts. Um, and I think the facts are, are pretty clear. In, in various parts of what was Yugoslavia, in various countries in Latin America, uh, nonviolence has just worked overwhelmingly better, which does not mean it always works. <laughs> it works about half the time, but violence doesn't work anywhere close to half the time. And, and when it works, the successes are very fragile and likely to be reversed because of the horrible resentment and vengeance that comes out of the violence. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times nonviolent movements will accomplish a tremendous amount and then somebody will turn violent uh, and that's all anybody will remember. Uh, is the violence that that came at the end, uh, like the, like the, the trick protests in Seattle, you know, in the 90s. But the, the American Revolution, uh, over a period of years, people in the United States had almost replaced the British government with alternative governments, with committees of correspondence. They had engaged in nonviolent uh, resistance protests, takeovers of courthouses, corporate protests, dumping tea in the harbors. Uh, they, they had uh, you know, created these new structures of government and of economy in a very Gandhian manner, uh, producing their own goods so as not to have to buy them and pay the British taxes on them. And to sort of the, the obstructive and the constructive, you know, before Mondas Gandhi ever talked about any of this stuff, right? Uh, and you go back through history and you see the success of nonviolence before anybody knew what they were doing or had any schools teaching it, it, it still worked. So that even during World War II, where nonviolence was used against the Nazis, even in the heart of Berlin, it was incredibly successful. And if people had known how to follow through and escalate it, who knows what would have happened. Is there anything else you think we could learn from, you know, uh, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, or Gandhi? Uh, anything, I just really want to uh, exhaust this as much as possible so we can get as many ideas out there. Well, I still have a lot to learn from each of those people. Uh, I couldn't uh, begin to exhaust it if we had hours and hours because I don't know it. Um, but I think uh, that more and more people are learning it and more and more people are using it. Uh, 
and it's be and by it I mean the tools of nonviolent resistance, civil resistance, uh, the, the tools of strikes and sit-ins and sit-downs and lions and uh, and nonviolent creative artistic uh, disruptions and uh, and street blockages and lobbying and petitioning and media creation and substitute government creation and all the thousands and thousands of things that aren't violence, you know, all of the things you can use other than that one little thing called violence uh, are increasingly being studied and understood and used and used for good and ill used, you know, used for, you know, campaigns that are that are fueled and funded and supported by corrupt oligarchies that want to generate these astroturf movements uh, to, you know, gin up public support uh, against the public good, as well as being used by uh, real popular movements that are based in a in a in a democratic popular understanding of what's needed. Uh, and so, you know, the fact that these tools can be used for evil ends doesn't mean they're bad tools. Uh, and the fact that these nonviolent tools almost always result in violence from the other side that has to be overcome and pushed through uh, isn't some sort of mark against nonviolence uh, as a strategy. This is expected and understood from, from the get-go. Um, but I think, you know, uh, a lot of people believe that when there is a popular movement, it really almost always does have major popular support. And when foreign governments and agencies and the CIA and the USAID jump in, you know, to support somebody like Juan Guaido in Venezuela, it actually tends to diminish their popular support and hurt them. Uh, you know, I haven't studied enough cases in enough detail to know if that's if that's really predictably true. But if so, that would be that would be simply wonderful news. Uh, if if people have come to understand that that foreign support can be identified and spotted, and that it's a reason to back off and get out of a popular movement. I mean, this this would absolutely defang the the CIA and the USAID and and you know this this pattern of 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 coup facilitation that we've that we've seen for the past seventy years. Final thing on um, uh, nonviolent uh, resistance uh, is your general theory that engaging in nonviolence resistance exposes the violence of the opposition of you know whoever the uh, evildoers are let's take the rosa parks case being the uh, american police it exposes that and that's what changes popular opinion and that's what gets people to change policies they otherwise might not even reconsider in many 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 cases yes this is how it okay. works and this is why communications is so incredibly important uh you know if uh, I, I mean the the u.s civil rights movement if the 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 northern and the national media outlets could not be counted upon to sometimes cover and show people 
the horror, the, the abuses, the, the pushback from the, the racist governors and sheriffs and police chiefs, well, then it never would have worked, not the way that it was done. Um, and this is the same thing that, uh, that we see in, uh, in, in cases around the world. Um, the problem is how corrupt, how out of touch and out of control the major media outlets have become. Uh, so that you do not get the same coverage uh, of protest movements today that you got in the 1960s or of wars. Horrible and slanted as the US media coverage of the war on Vietnam may have been and certainly was. Uh, you, you, you had footage of, of victims uh, in the war, human beings. You saw the horror now and again. Uh, this, is, this is very rare. Uh, you know, and when you have an instance where people in Gaza or Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan are, or Yemen are, are presented and treated as human beings uh, and the, the crime, the, the horrific actions taken against them as something regrettable, th these are, you know, rare, outstanding flukes in U.S. media coverage that everybody sends each other on social media. Um, but they're not the they're not the bulk uh, of the media coverage, which dehumanizes and ignores and avoids showing the suffering. Um, and so it, it, this is why it's you know it's such a difficult thing globally. But it's it, but it's a power. It, it's it's so much easier to use locally, especially when you can generate media. Um, and and this is why the ability of individuals to generate social media and small media uh, is so important. Yeah, that, uh, that that's an excellent point. And also, uh, it, it's just, I, I want to say funny, but it's more sad to see how the media just throws away these stories once they don't fit the narrative. Assad is gassing his own people. Uh, oh, it's actually a video from a gun range in Kentucky. Ask, screw the Kurds. We never cared. They haven't been brought up since. Gaddafi is giving his troops Viagra for mass rape. Uh, well, then they go overthrow Gaddafi and now they're slave markets. Haven't heard about Libya since. Of course, they never follow it up. They pull at your heartstrings, you justify the war, and then they're on to Russiagate or whatever uh, their next uh, horrible thing is. Want to get back uh, to the book, Leaving World War II Behind. Did the attack at Pearl Harbor justify the U.S. responding by declaring war on Japan? Well, I, not to be <laughs> repetitive, but I have to say, I don't think you can justify declaring or waging war on anyone. Um, and, uh, you know, again, Hawaii was not part of the United States. Uh, it's very telling that that day is now called, now thought of as Pearl Harbor Day, or at the time it wasn't, right? At the time, uh, this is a story very well told in a, in a book of a couple years back called How to Hide an Empire. Uh, the, the Japanese attacked numerous countries uh, on the same day, including the Philippines, where Douglas MacArthur left all the airplanes lined up on the runway to be destroyed, vastly more damage done than, you know, to a handful of ships at Pearl Harbor, most of which were quickly put back into use. Uh, you know, but the Philippines didn't have a lot of white people in it. Hawaii was thought of as a more acceptable future state, uh, as a more, as, as a more, 
plausible and appropriate place to pretend was part of the United States and to treat the attack as on the United States as it's treated to this day. Uh, and so the fact that the, the Japanese attacked Guam and uh, Alaska as well and, and numerous uh, nations and islands across the Pacific, uh, most of which it invaded and occupied for some time beginning that day, including the Philippines with horrific results, whereas Pearl Harbor was this, this quick one-off bombing. Uh, it doesn't matter because the narrative is, is about this story about this sacred site where this evil dark-skinned nation of lunatics attacked the United States of goddamn America. And, you know, the fact that it was, you know, an island country that didn't want to be part of the United States and still wasn't at that time doesn't matter. The fact that the United States uh, had been dead set on getting into a war with Japan for decades leading up, there had been a public arms race between the two. There had been threats. There had been the base building around the Pacific by the United States, the, the provocative sanctions and blockades, cutting Japan off, expecting reprisals and getting them. Uh, the fact that one of the, the judges at the tribunal in Tokyo after the war concluded that in fact the United States had provoked the war. Uh, the fact that, in, that the U.S. Navy had been told the war was started prior to Pearl Harbor, that Franklin Roosevelt had started the draft prior to Pearl Harbor, that Franklin Roosevelt had made the list of all the Japanese Americans to deal with prior to Pearl Harbor, uh, et cetera. It, it, you know, there, there's, there's endless disputes over exactly who knew what at what hour regarding the bombing of, of Pearl Harbor. Uh, but the fact that nothing was done to prevent the war, the fact that the United States government had a list of ways to provoke the war and had been ticking them off for months, taking each step, uh, the, the fact that the, the two governments wanted the war and that the U.S. government principally wanted the war as a means of getting into the war in Europe and that Roosevelt that night drafted a declaration of war on Japan and Germany until he was talked into taking Germany out of it. Uh, you know, this, none of this stuff fits the narrative, but it's indisputable fact. As far as, I, I think the book came out in 1947 or 48, George Morgenstern was quoting the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson at the time, saying in this guy's own diary in, I believe, November 29th, 1941, he was saying, uh, we had a meeting, uh, we talked about uh, doing everything we could to get Japan to make the first move in order to justify the war. You had uh, Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt in Newfoundland, according to the New York Times, war entry plans laid to Roosevelt. He had explicitly said uh, they're trying to provoke Germany at the time uh, with uh, the, the same submarine warfare that uh, they had with the Lusitania, but then they moved to Japan. Uh, you even had uh, the McCullum memo that Robert Stinnett uh, published in uh, 1999, which uh, you, you mentioned uh, in, in the book. So uh, is there anything else about the Pearl Harbor controversy? I know John Toland also wrote a book called Infamy. Is there any other pieces of evidence to show that far from being, you know, the official story, America was this isolationist country that just minded its own business, out of nowhere was attacked, and that's why we can never uh, listen to the David Swansons of the world because Pearl Harbors and 9-11s happen. 
well, you know, it's a pair of lies in that myth, right? The United States wasn't an innocent bystander. Uh, the United States was building bases and airports and putting ships in the Pacific and provoking Japan knowingly for decades on this. There was no secret about it and never has been. Uh, and there was no surprise. You have newspapers with headlines. So you can go pull up, pull up the newspapers and look at them, you know, Japan likely to attack uh, over the weekend. So the notion that it was out of a clear blue sky and nobody had any indication, the United States uh, expected this. There was a nearby island, a tiny little island, a part of Hawaii that they thought Japan would land on first and then attack from there. And they had the owners of the island get their Hawaiian workers to take mules and plow the whole thing up. Uh, so that it would be so rough the Japanese couldn't land a plane on this little island. Uh, and when one of the Japanese planes during the attack on Pearl Harbor, for which they didn't use the island, had to make an emergency landing on that island, they actually didn't have any problem despite all the work of those mules and, and plows. So uh, it, it just was not a surprise. Uh, it was not defensible. It wasn't an act of kindness. It was a horrific, unforgivable act of mass murder for which the Japanese should have been prosecuted in a fair court. Uh, but it was it was the culmination of the efforts of countries uh, upping the hostilities for years and months and weeks and the U.S. conscious, deliberate effort to make sure Japan could be depicted as having uh, taken the first shot. I, I really like how you said uh, that it was a crime and we should recognize it as such and we should treat it like anyone else uh, who uh, committed uh, such an evil action would be treated because I, you know, get called this stupid pansy softy by everyone else when they go, oh, you're anti-war, you live in fantasy land. The reality is sometimes you got to get your hands dirty to which I just follow up and say, or that their big word is appeasement. You can't engage in appeasement to which I say, so I need to go murder Joe Biden so he'll stop bombing people in Somalia recently or Syria or Yemen. And I need to go start killing politicians and US soldiers because, you know, I can't talk to them. I can't convince them that would be appeasement. I can't ask officers to stop enforcing the drug laws. Uh, I need to just start opening fire on them. Is that what you're saying? And then all of a sudden they turn immediately to our side and say, well, that is ridiculously barbaric. And actually, it probably wouldn't even do anything uh, remotely beneficial to the cause at large. So all you have to do is take their own logic, flip it against them to when it's no longer convenient. And then they're like on our side in like a matter of minutes. Um, yeah, I, I really like that. Uh, take them to uh, court, uh, court idea. Have you seen uh, any large scale examples of, I don't know, terrorist attacks, let's just call Pearl Harbor an act of terrorism, um, that where uh, the uh, people, uh, the culprits, have been taken to court, prosecuted, and a war has been avoided? That's an excellent question. And by the way, I would love to get you in touch with people I see wearing t-shirts proposing to murder Joe Biden. Uh, it's actually not that, not that rare an opinion, I think, uh, <laughs> rather dangerously enough in, in this country. Um, you know, that there were attacks on the World Trade Center prior to September 2001 that were treated as crimes and prosecuted. Um, the, the crimes of that date 
were somehow magically transformed from crimes to a war. Uh, and so nobody was to be prosecuted. Uh, somebody was to be bombed. Uh, and this was a choice by the United States government and the United States media not had nothing to do with the actions of that day, uh, which were just a little larger and more successful than very similar actions that were treated as crimes. Uh, if you look at the if you look at the terrorism, uh, meaning essentially poor man's wars, you know wars without giant budgets, uh, because there's nothing about the U.S. or NATO wars that isn't terrifying and terrorizing. Uh, is they're they're just very well armed and well funded, so it's not terrorism. Uh, if you look at the terrorism coming out of uh, the war on terrorism, which for years and years increased terrorism around the world, took this group that was living in caves in Afghanistan and spread it across dozens of countries. Uh, some of the terrorism has uh, been addressed by treating it as a crime and uh, looking into its motivations and others other times by treating it as somehow magically an act of war in need of bombing. So, you know, when someone put off a bomb in a subway in London, that was an act of war. The UK needed to go bomb some countries uh, in Southwest Asia. And of course, there were more bombs going off in London. When a bomb went off in Madrid, Spain, uh, this was treated as a crime in need of prosecution and a reason to elect a government that would take Spain out of these insane US-UK-led wars. And there, there was never an act of terrorism uh, in Spain, at least coming from outside of Spain, uh, from that day to this one. Um, and, and, and people would say, well, that's appeasement. That's, that's obeying the wishes of the terrorists to stop bombing their women and children uh, because they set off a bomb on a, on a tr you know, in, in Spain. You're, that, that appeasement's just gonna create endless bombings in Spain. But of course, the exact opposite is the reality. There hasn't been another bombing in Spain, whereas the terrorist threats and attacks on U.S. troops and, and the troops of countries that, are, that have continued their involvement in these idiotic wars have gone on. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to... Uh, it, 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 it's hard to find cases of international crimes that have been prosecuted as the crimes they are because there isn't hardly any system of justice. There's an international criminal court that claims it can now prosecute the crime of war as a crime. They call it aggression, I call it war, uh, but it hasn't done so. And it's, it's an international criminal court for Africans. I mean, you have to have done something horrible and you have to be African to get prosecuted. It's under the thumb as is the entire United Nations of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. It's a, it's a global institution that lacks democracy, that you know, runs around the world claiming to promote democracy, that, that's given the five worst offenders veto power over anything. So it's, you know, it's got this, this weakness. So yeah, I would like to see international crimes prosecuted as crimes. Uh, I would like to see countries use universal jurisdiction and prosecute the crimes of other countries that are failing to prosecute their own crimes. I'd like to see the World Court and the International Criminal Court prosecute crimes, but they'd have to be fair and democratic uh, to do so 
against the worst actors uh, in the world who are the most powerful forces in the world. And people like Ahmed Salim and Ramsey Youssef and Timothy McVeigh, would those all count as examples of what could have, what, I mean, if the press had declared them terrorism and the politicians followed, they all could have started wars uh, s some way or another. Um, was Ramsey Youssef the guy in 93 who uh, was in court? Do you remember? I believe. I'm sorry to just put, put that on you. I'm trying to think of an example. I, well, let's, let's take Timothy McVeigh first. Uh, I mean, here's, here's a case where the media within minutes was telling everybody to look for somebody Islamic or Muslim or dark-skinned, uh, and then very soon discovered that it was some white-skinned uh, U.S. military veteran of, of the first, the Gulf War uh, on Iraq. Uh, and, and so it very quickly went from possible terrorism to non-terrorism uh, in, I think, the discourse of, of most or many be, because of who was involved. Uh, and, and so terrorism tends in the US media, I think decreasingly so, but it still tends to be not just the poor guy's war, but the foreign guy's war, the dark-skinned guy's war. Uh, and, and so, you know, the fact that most terrorism in the United States is committed by people from the United States, is committed by what are called white men, uh, doesn't fit with people's notion of terrorism. Um, and, you know, the, the, there, there are similar uh, stories to McVeigh's that are just not acceptable in the U.S. media. You can't talk about the fact that mass shootings today are very disproportionately committed by veterans of the U.S. military. The second you do so, you have somehow uh, insulted all the great brave servicemen and women as being terrorists and mass killers, even though you haven't, right? <laughs> even though it's a teeny tiny, tiny fraction of a percent of people who are mass shooters. Almost nobody is a mass shooter. Uh, but those who are, are very disproportionately uh, military veterans, which ought not to be shocking. Uh, people who have been trained and armed in mass shooting and praised for it, uh, and then booted out and not given any clear path to a, to a good life after uh, this so-called service they've done, why wouldn't they be? But you can't talk about that, and you can't even talk about the fact that McVeigh was a military veteran and what impact that had on his action. I want to end the World War II discussion with uh, the quote from uh, Winston Churchill's preface in The Gathering Storm. He said, one day President Roosevelt told me that he was asking publicly for suggestions about what the war should be called. I said at once, the unnecessary war. There never was a war more easily to stop than that which has just wrecked what was left of the world from the previous struggle. The human tragedy reaches its climax in the fact that after all the exertions and sacrifices of hundreds of millions of people and the victories of the righteous cause, we have still not found peace or security and that we lie in the grip of even worse perils than those we have surmounted. Winston Churchill, 1948. What can we learn from that passage? Well, I think he's absolutely right uh, that World War II, like every other war or every other major uh, 
enterprise that humanity has produced could have been avoided. We could have chosen not to do that. Uh, and I think if people would accept the reality of today, the risk of nuclear apocalypse, the incredible financial expense, the incredible damage to self-governance and government transparency, the incredible environmental damage, the fueling of racism and bigotry, all of the catastrophes that flow out of the military industrial complex and oppose it and understand that we could never have a justifiable war going forward, then I wouldn't care what they thought about World War II. They could just love the heck out of World War II. What would I care if they agreed with me going forward? But it doesn't work that way. They all love military spending and military adventures because of World War II. And the saturation infotainment uh, propaganda, the Hollywood movies, the cartoons, the history books about World War II. Uh, and, and this is why I think we have to go after World War II and, and in some very weird ways that seem tangential, right? We have to explain to people that the Nordic race and the eugenics came out of the United States and California, that the, that the segregation laws were learned by the Nazis when they came to study them in the United States, that the practice of genocide in the concentration camps was a Europe-wide and US uh, led enterprise that it didn't, it didn't originate in Nazi Germany. And this stuff, weirdly enough, eats away at the World War II mythology that bizarrely enough supports the military enterprise we're dealing with today. Do you have an uh, elevator pitch to veterans uh, when you meet them with regard to the anti-war message? Hi, I'm an associate member of Veterans for Peace because it is a wonderful organization that let me join even though I'm not a veteran and I highly recommend you join them and get to know them. Or I could say the same thing with Iraq Veterans Against the War, now called uh, About Face, another wonderful organization. Uh, but I tell them, you know, look, I, I appreciate what you've been through. I appreciate that it's not what I've been through and that you know things and have experienced things that I haven't. Uh, but let's talk about uh, what you went through and whether it was worthwhile and whether you would recommend it to kids going forward. Because there are veterans, even veterans who have some pride and sense of comradeship with their veteran status who think the very most important thing to do is to stop producing more veterans. Uh, and I agree with them uh, because we need bravery and solidarity and brotherhood and sacrifice. If we don't have those, we're not going to survive disease pandemics, forest fires, mass floodings, uh, and all the catastrophes that we have no choice about having to deal with. But to have, you know, heroism and bravery perverted into going out and ginning up dangers and catastrophes that we don't have any need of, well, you know, this is a recipe for disaster. So maybe let's stop doing that going forward. Okay, the elevator's through the roof by now, but you get the idea. <laughs> Final question. You wrote a book called War is a Lie. What is the thesis of your book, War is a Lie? Well, uh, a lot of it is related to what you brought up earlier, that, that they tell you different lies 
in the middle of the war and after the war from what they told you before the war. And so I started out thinking, well, well, I started out, let me try to find an honest war. Let me try to find a war that was based on straightforward truth by anybody. It doesn't have to be my country, my century. Let me look around. I couldn't find one. Couldn't find one. And okay, well, let me document all the lies for all the big wars. Well, it was gonna be a million page book. So I said, okay, let me do this. Let me give themes of the types of lies they tell. And some of them are lies they tell before wars. Some are during wars, some are escalating wars, some are after wars. And you can have, you can have completely contradictory lies even at the same stage in a war, right? We need to go bomb this country because we need to go kill every last dirty Iranian. They're evil, we hate them, they're not human. Or let's go bomb Iran for democracy for the benefit of the good Iranian people, our brothers who, who deserve our bombs just as much as anybody else around the world. You can have those simultaneously and different sections of the population falling for each one. Uh, and, and so, because we have this history in recent decades of pollsters finding strong majorities saying a war never should have been fought within about a year of it getting started, and then saying that for decades more as it rolls on, I wanted faster reactions. I want people prepared to spot the lies more quickly. Right. And, and so instead of waiting for a Freedom of Information Act request decades later to discover that weapons weren't there, maybe develop the ability to recognize that weapons being somewhere doesn't justify a war, no matter what, even if it's true. <laughs> if having weapons justified getting bombed, the United States should be bombed. Right. This is insanity. And so it's a guidebook to spotting the lies immediately without any need for detailed facts and to confront them immediately and say, no, this is a fraudulent case for war when it might actually have some impact. As we saw in 2013 on Syria, 2015 on Iran, as we tend to see uh, increasingly people able to spot war lies and say, no, when it matters, not another Iraq, you know? Uh, and, and, and so it's, it's debunking the old war lies like Iraq that helps confront the new war lies like Syria because you got Congress members not wanting to be that jerk who falls for another Iraq. Um, so it's important that we confront the old ones, even the big glorious old ones like World War II. But it's also important that we be able to spot the new ones faster. And that, that was the idea. The book is Leaving World War II Behind. It's been endorsed by Nicholson Baker, author of Human Smoke. Scott Horton, of course, has called Mr. Swanson one of the most uh, important peace activists in the world. Please check out the book description and Mr. Swanson's website will be in the description below. Mr. Swanson, thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.